This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, happy 4th of July. It's Independence Day in the United States of America. If you're listening from there, anywhere within, uh, I want to wish you uh, a happy Independence Day. And I hope that you have the opportunity to celebrate in a fitting manner. Uh, Each year, we, um, as a family, we have a couple of traditions that come about on this day. One of them is Strawberry Fanta. Right when the kids were little, they didn't drink a whole lot of soda. Well, they still don't drink a whole lot of soda. But this is the day where um, we buy a couple of cases of uh, strawberry Fanta, and it takes a couple of cases because there are so many of us, right? Uh, and so we we barbecue, we go someplace where we can enjoy the fireworks. But oftentimes we're gonna do kind of the local firework thing. Um, not necessarily going to watch someone else's show, but to get a couple of little firecrackers ourselves and go out in the front yard. Uh, now we live in unincorporated uh, county, and so we have a little bit more freedom to do that. We're interested to see what it's going to look like this year. Uh, I keep telling the kids we've recently moved a little bit north of where we were before, so now we're we're a whole whopping seven miles south of the Canadian border. And I keep telling the kids, "Oh yeah, Fourth of July, we're going to go. We're going to watch the Canadian fireworks." Uh, they don't think it's very funny, uh, but but I do. <laughs> So yeah, we, we celebrate, we have um, this this great time of uh, of leisure. We talked about that last week with Dr. Tim Muldoon here on the show. This great time of a leisure and enjoying one another's company and doing things that are memorable. And so I want to know a little bit about your celebration of Independence Day. Why don't you come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. And tell me just a little bit about what is it uh, about your celebration of this day that makes that the the, the day, right? Uh, whatever celebration we have, there's always something that makes it for us, right? If you have a Thanksgiving meal that there's a certain dish that's like, if it if we didn't have that, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving. Uh, for us as a family, if, if there wasn't Strawberry Fanta, you know, it's not really, we haven't really done the 4th of July. What does the 4th of July look like for you uh, in, in your personal and your familial celebration? So this is a, a day where we celebrate uh, freedom, right? The, the freedom that we as a, a country enjoy. But even as we celebrate that freedom, we have to be vigilant to also safeguard that freedom. I saw an article recently on uh, National Catholic Register, ncregister.com, about the USCCB Religious Liberty Chair, Archbishop Winsky, who warns about a soft despotism of anti-Catholicism on the rise, uh, pointing to a number of different things that are popping up in our culture that highlight the difference between being a, a citizen of of this nation and being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, many times those two things can coexist. And, and in those occasions, we rejoice. But I think that we have to remember that our citizenship ultimately lies in heaven. Our citizenship ultimately is in the kingdom of God, and we are merely sojourners and strangers here in this life. Uh, this is something that we find even in Scripture uh, that that language of being a sojourner and a stranger in this land. And so, 
as we today go out and light fireworks and have uh, cookouts and anything else that we might be doing what, that, that makes the celebration for us, we also should remember and keep our minds attuned to our eternal home, right? Uh, not to be so comfortable in this place that we forget where our true allegiances lie. Uh, this brings up a story um, that, that kind of crystallizes this this picture for me. Before I was Catholic, I was a, a minister of worship and arts. I was a, a musician uh, and liturgist in a Protestant church. And I remember back, oh, around 2000, maybe 2001, I went back to the, the childhood church of mine, um, church that I was raised in up until about the time I was eight years old. And I was there on the 4th of July because I'd been there for some other uh, thing out in that area. And I went to go visit this home church again that I hadn't seen in so long. And I'm in there and I was just a little bit uncomfortable because all of the hymns were patriotic songs. Uh, they were they were songs praising the nation and not songs in a worship service that were praising God. I found that a little bit odd, um, but you know, I, I carried on with it. Uh, but what really struck me was at the very end of the service, there was this lovely choral piece where uh, very patriotic, it was very lovely, uh, a great arrangement. Um, and at the very end of the song, there was a, a 50 foot American flag that dropped from the ceiling. And th uh, this wasn't intentional, but what happened was there was this lovely stained glass rose window in this Protestant church with, uh, with a stained glass of Christ the Good Shepherd. And in the end of this climactic choral piece, this 50-foot uh, American flag dropped and obscured the image of Christ. Now, uh, I love the 4th of July, uh, always have. I love the fireworks. I love the tradition behind it. But that day, as it was brought into the middle of a worship service, it really stood out to me, the dichotomy, that we have to be careful that in our expression of our patriotism, we don't obscure the face of Christ. Now, I'm not necessarily talking specifically about that flag and that day, but it speaks to something. It's an image that we can see happening in our celebration of our country, that uh, if we do it without uh, without objectivity, if we celebrate our country without really taking a close look at what it is that we're celebrating, if we if we move forward in uh, our expression of support for the country at all costs, we might end up supporting this. Uh, soft de despotism of anti-Catholicism that uh, that, our, that Archbishop Winsky talked about. We have to remember and keep in mind who primarily we are, that we are the people of God, that we are Catholic, and that, yes, we are members. We're many of us born into the United States, some of us uh, coming as immigrants into the United States, but finding our identity as Americans, yes, but first and foremost, finding our identities as followers of Jesus Christ, as missionary disciples of Christ, and as Catholics. And so today I want to explore that a little bit. I want to wrestle with this idea 
of how we celebrate and truly mark our, our freedoms in such a way that we also don't obscure the face of Christ to those around us who are watching. Now, this is a hard discussion to have, and so I can't think of anyone I would rather have it with than today's guest. We're talking today with, uh, with Dr. Sam Roca. He is the Associate Professor of the Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. You may have heard of him recently because uh, if, you haven't, if he hasn't come across your radar before, he just did a, uh, a debate with Trent Horn on Catholic Answers. Uh, it, wherever you fall on that issue, it's definitely a, a debate worth watching. And you're going to learn something regardless of the position you come in with even if you don't change your mind. Uh, so glad to have you back on the show, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. You're one of the uh, earlier shows that's had me on multiple times. Yeah, we uh, we started off, gosh, you did a, a piece some time ago with uh, with Artur Rossman um, yeah. on, on immigration. And I wanted to get into the topic and I didn't know how to do it. And so I, my kind of my whole thing is I want to find people who are smarter than me about a topic <laughs> And let them talk about it. And so you were gracious to come on do that. We've had you on a couple of times. And w- whenever you're on, you talk about uh, these topics that that are a little bit um, uncomfortable in our in our current climate and our current consciousness. Uh, and I love having you on because it pushes those ideas and makes us really think about it. Uh, so often we we just take a party line and we don't ever take the time to examine whether or not um, there's something behind that party line. And so I love having you on because it, it makes me think and it makes me push the edges of what I believe. And so today I want to talk about uh, a fourfold idea, and it's the isms. Um, patriotism, it's the 4th of July today. Patriotism, mm-hmm. nationalism, uh, Americanism, and Catholicism. Now, th- this is one of those things where you get to pick two, and you only get to pick two. Uh, because the four of them are not compatible with one another in their entirety. Uh, and yet so often, as we look at uh, the expressions of, uh, of national pride, they can move from patriotism into nationalism, and that's a place that takes us and puts us at odds with our Catholicism. So let's explore this idea. First of all, why don't you take just a moment and give us kind of the bird's-eye view of each of those four uh, words and the definitions and how we can define them today. Sure. I mean, anytime you have an ism, I always think it's good to throw the ism off and get behind it and get in kind of the, into the meat of the word. Um, so patriotism comes from the Latin patris, uh, which refers to, to father. So it's like a way to say fatherland in a way. Um, and, um, and patriotism is in some sense a familial uh sentiment one has towards one's uh, father hand, fatherland or motherland or whatever you want to refer to. Um, nationalism obviously is, is, is interesting because you might say, well, isn't the fatherland or the motherland in some sense the nation? Well, actually patriotism is a great bit older. It's older than the nation state. The nation state is a kind of modern political entity that's kind of emerged uh, nationalism is uh, a particular, almost you could say, conflation of one's familial sensibilities with a larger entity called the nation. 
And throughout history, nationalism has also revealed itself in a particular political ideology uh, called fascism, which fascism just is taken from uh, the, the word in Italian for um, a bundle of sticks. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of idea that we're stronger together. So a kind of like strong unilateral sort of stance would be classic kind of nationalist. And it does evoke a kind of a, a certain degree of a kind of fascist sensibility. Um, as you can see, there's a lot of moral distance between, I think, uh, a healthy sense of familial bonds to a people or, or uh, uh, a place mm-hmm. uh, on the one hand. But then on the other hand, you have to worry about the kind of blood and soil version of that uh, or the provincial sensibilities of that. This is something we talked about at the very beginning uh, when we first, on our first episode together, this idea of the the blood and soil, how when we get into a place of us versus them, which nationalism always takes us to, uh, and I think that patriotism doesn't necessarily take us to, whenever we get to the us versus them, we have to remember that as Catholics, uh, throughout history, we were the them. We were on the other side of that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm glad you brought that up. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the first thing on my mind, but um, this to me is very interesting. So uh, I think ultimately what these two isms and what their kind of meat gets at is essentially the, a larger question, which is the question of allegiance. To whom do I owe my allegiance? I have to admit, that uh, uh, I don't think I have any theological overlaps with uh, Jehovah's Witness. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I don't think we agree on anything theologically. Um, yet I do have a certain admiration, I have to confess, to their very fierce anti, uh, kind of anti-Americanism, not because of its specificity to America, but to the fact that they kind of have this um, maybe exaggerated or hyperbolic stance against any nation. They only pledge allegiance to God, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is not, this is obviously not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is that we can be members of, uh, of a nation and we can have a fatherland or a motherland. We can have familial bonds, but that they have to be balanced and proportioned um, by the uh, the kingdom of God and the kingship of God and, the, and and these kinds of things. And in the United States of America, we don't have to go all the way back like we did a, a while back. We can even go to Kennedy, you know, to speak again about another religion that's not Catholic as an analog to Catholicism. I don't know if you remember Mitt Romney's famous, famous Kennedy speech he had to give, but whenever Romney was running for president, he obviously wasn't successful, but he had to give this kind of like, People called it the Kennedy speech. And the reason they called it the Kennedy speech is he had to explain to a nation that uh, has been deeply anti-Mormon in its history. Um, There have been massacres and all kinds of horrible things that happened to the Mormons in Missouri and stuff. Um, He had to explain to them how how his Latter-day Saints religious identity wasn't going to interfere with his presidency. They called that the Kennedy speech because that was the exact same speech that JFK had to give when he was running for the presidency. Um, as the Democratic nominee, as as the first Catholic. And the reason I'm saying this is that the doubts that people had about Romney, which were the doubts that people had about Kennedy, was a question of allegiance. The question for Kennedy was, literally, this is what the Protestant American status quo wondered, is he going to be picking up the phone from the Vatican and getting his orders 
as opposed to his constituents and, and, the, and, and, and America. And this may seem very foreign to our imagination, but it's really not that long ago, relatively right. speaking. So there's a kind of cultural tension that's, I think, natural to the Catholic where we are a historically, um, we're a historically suspicious culture, mm-hmm. not only to nationalism writ large, but in particular to, and now we're getting to the other two, to American nationalism, or we might say Americanism. And let's, um, let's be clear that when we use the term Americanism, we're using a term that was uh, uh, first brought to us by the Pope, right? This is, yeah, this the is a, of errors, yeah. Um, I was wondering if you were going to go oh. uh, all the way to the source, but yeah, this is correct. Uh, Americanism as an ecclesiastical word um, as far as I know, by the way, patriotism and nationalism are more or less from natural reason informs our understanding of those words. Right. However, Americanism uh, in its ecclesiastical sense is a condemned heresy mm-hmm. um, in the 19th century. And this doesn't mean that it is a heresy to be American or even oh, to be not. a patriot in America, but there are certain no. beliefs that, that uh, are pernicious in our culture that can lead us to be at odds with our allegiance uh, to God. I think so. I mean, I would also though say that like, I think it was 1864, um, around that time, a lot of the worries or concerns that were expressed in the 19th century about America were actually, you might say, um, the Catholic church beginning to process the effects of the American and French revolutions. Mm -hmm. So when the church Respond so strongly. It's kind of hard. I I always think this is this is what came up in the debate about socialism. We we have to understand in context and historically what's being talked about. And I think that the church has always been very suspicious of of revolutions. Now the revolution against the English was against the uh, Anglo Catholicism. So the English Anglican communion wasn't really a major concern in terms of uh, uh, a concern of the church, the way the French revolution was. But I think there was this, uh, a worry about this kind of Americanism because what's funny is that even though the French revolution was the most overtly anti-Catholic in the sense of anti-Roman Catholic revolution, the American revolution really captured the imagination you could say of the world. And it, it was that revolution, which in many ways was kind of being used as this kind of bulwark of, of liberalism and what have you. Mm-hmm. So the church was worried about that. Now, 2020, I don't think those concerns track one to one, but I do think we can say, we can see how the heresy of Americanism has in some sense uh, remained in some ways constant, but also inflected itself in other ways. One of the ways I think we can see this just as Catholics is like American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Um Today on on Twitter, um, someone uh, claimed that the church, the Catholic church is shrinking. And I said, demographically speaking, of course, what do we mean by shrinking? Right. Who knows? Demographically speaking, though, I said, that's empirically not true. And their response to me was to show me a statistic that in the United States, the Catholic church uh, uh, pew attendance has gone down. And I simply said, that is true, but unfortunately, the U.S. American pew attendance is not a empirical fact that tells us about the state of the church. The church has grown from 
the eighties at like the, 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 the mid billions to 2015, the last time they counted to be the low trillions. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the state of the church, demographically speaking. What I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up though, is this does show how I think in the American psyche, we can quickly think that the state of the American church, whatever that means, the American church is itself the state of the church. And it's simply not true. We're talking today with Dr. Sam Roca, and this is something worth looking at because this is not just an American thing. Another time that this happened was with Martin Luther, who looked at the state of the German church around him and, and made an assumption about what that said about the health of the church writ large. And we know how that, that ended up. Yeah. So one of the other things you talked about was allegiance. And I want to go back to that idea because this is one that really resonates with me uh, is this question of um, who are we? We talked about this on the show uh, a couple of months ago with Joe Heschmeyer, who had this whole uh, episode on identity. And the thing that he postulated and put forth was that when we determine and, and settle on an identity, it sets the trajectory for who we're going to be. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is that difference between patriotism and, and nationalism, that that the difference between family and I am proud of where I'm from and I am proud of uh, the family that I have, or nationalism, which says, and all of the rest of you, <laughs> you're on the outside, right. um, that that sets a different timbre. Uh, Absolutely. And could I go just one onion layer a little bit deeper? What I don't think the church... I mean, it's so interesting, the timing of that heresy, because that her- it times out almost exactly to the end of the Civil War hmm. in the United States. Um, and I think as Americans, we forget that the world was watching um, very closely at the American Civil War. Uh, like, in some sense, the world watches all, all wars, but in particular, the institution of shadow slavery going up against the American experiment was quite the face-off, right? Um, and the reason I say that is that Whenever we talk about Americanism, nationalism, uh, patriotism, when we get to the question of allegiance, though, there's also the situation where I think we know that sometimes allegiances, even within families, are kind of awkward. There's favoritism. Does does so-and-so like so-and-so more? You've always treated them better. Uh, Has so-and-so really been a part of the family? We have... Uh, the these entities in in the brokenness of human families that have always existed of the uh, you know my father was adopted he didn't he wasn't a biological son he never knew his biological father biology and ancestry become the reason I'm saying this is that in the American uh, understanding of itself there's this deep wound mm-hmm. um, which is which is the wound I think the 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 the, the well, I don't want to compete over the deepest wounds. Okay. There are many deep wounds. Um, I don't think we can say that 246 years of, of, of enslavement doesn't create a really tough wound and then to follow that up with 100 years of a Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 346 years worth of injury, moral injury. Um, that particular wound weighs heavy on the question of allegiance because it makes, even inside of the family, there's this sense of, are we really a part of the family. If you go to my heritage, Mexican-American, my family has been north of the U.S.-American border. You know this from our last show. Right. Longer than a lot of the, you know, Anglos and Europeans who came over. Uh, and, and so our sense of allegiance is difficult because we have no real national relation to Mexico as a nation, but we have an, an ethnic and cultural sense of identity, a language 
uh, which itself is an inheritance from the from colonialism and, 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 and the Spanish. I've even been reading, I'm reading a book right now on the Comanches. It's fascinating. It's called Comanche Empire. And it's been really convicting because whenever Mexicans think of like who they are and their kind of mix, they think of Cortez in one arm and Moctezuma in the other. And as I'm reading this geographically, I'm like, that's all wrong. Hmm. I'm probably more related to a Ute or a Navajo or a Comanche in one arm and a Franciscan friar out in the missions in the other arm. Like, like I've, I've overgeneralizing my, 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 and it changes my sense of who I am in a way. Right. I think whenever you add to the questions of allegiance, not just political allegiance, but existential allegiance. Yeah. And then the bonds that are both broken, that are strengthened, that are weakened uh, and the wounds that have to be tended to, then I think we see that these um, these holidays, holiday really just means a holy day. Right. And a day that we keep holy is, is a day that we memorialize in some day. Um, in some cases, in the great feasts, we celebrate. But like, you know, Good Friday is, is, is a holy day. Hmm. And so I often wonder whether as Catholics, we're quite using the full... Um, the full scope of our, of our imagination and realize that we can actually maybe in some ways better understand descriptively, analytically, politically, existentially, um, the, uh, the human condition that comes to us on a day like July the 4th or, 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 you know, I'm in Canada. So it was yesterday, Canada day. Right. Um, and Canada, for instance, dispossession of indigenous land, I'm living on the West side as the crown came through and, and made kind of bad treaties through, through the prairies, by the time they made it to this side, uh, the, the Coast Salish people were like, we know exactly what you're doing. We're hurt. <laughs> we heard we're not signing any treaties. So I'm sitting right here on unseated Musqueam territory that is paid through taxes and all kinds of agreements on the endowment lands from the crown lands. They're still paying Musqueam for mm-hmm. As you can tell, th- these are very different relationships. If you go into Quebec, they have their own kind of nationalist sort of thing, like us Texans think right. we have sometimes. <laughs> you have that. I'm not saying this, by the way, to be difficult or to be um, uh, scandalous or to court controversy. It's simply, though, if we go back to the basic familial bond, if we go back to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth, my goodness, Cain, where is your brother? Yeah. This is to me um, what's most important, morally speaking, um, about questions of allegiance and about the the moral basis for the distinctions between, on the one hand, patriotism, for instance, and on the other hand, nationalism and, and, and Americanism and all those things. We're talking today with Dr. Sam Barroca. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy of Education at University of British Columbia. You can find him over at samroca.com. Uh, We're talking about patriotism as we're celebrating here the 4th of July and what's incumbent upon us uh, as Catholics to celebrate in such a way that sticks to patriotism and doesn't move into nationalism. There's much more to this conversation right after this, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L.,
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. And we're talking, hey, it's uh, it's the 4th of July. I hope that you've got plans to go out and enjoy the fireworks. Uh, I, I'm sure that um, you're going to do it safely, right? Maybe from the safety of your own car, but you, you, it doesn't, it's not the same to watch them on TV. You got to be there. You got to feel the, the shock waves of, uh, of the fireworks for it to really be uh, the 4th of July. Uh, recently, we've gone out and done just the like kind of little, little sparklers mm-hmm. uh, as we we're up in the Pacific Northwest where, where fewer things are allowed than they were <laughs> when we were down in Texas. But, you know, you still go out, you, you have a little bit of fun. You, you spend far too much money on uh, fireworks because it goes really fast when you're buying that. Uh, and, and it's something more uh, memorable. You know, you go out and the, the kids get to play with fire right? This is a memorable day. Uh, and, and it's a day worth marking, but I think it's a day worth marking and really taking the time to think about. Um, when I was the working for the diocese of Tulsa, I was working for Bishop Emeritus, um, Edward Slattery. And, uh, and he said something to me one day, we were talking around, uh, around a fire in the back of the chancery. Uh, and, sitting down, it was, I think it was after a, a big event. So there, every, there was food and, and drink and we were talking and, and enjoying ourselves as the sun went down. And we were talking about the, um, the problem with our individualistic culture. And he said this, and it, and it stuck with me, and it may not be original to him, but it's just really stuck with me. He said, no, 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 independence, uh, r- rather uh, individualism is good. We are all individuals. He said, our problem in the United States is not individualism, even rugged individualism. It's independentism, this idea that we can be somehow independent from one another and somehow not responsible for one another. That's where we get into the weeds. So today we're looking at this and we're talking with Dr. Sam Roca, who's the Associate Professor of the Philosophy of Education at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. Man, that's a long title. Glad to have you on the show again today. Thanks. I'm just up the road from you now. You know. Yeah, I know. I'm just we uh, we moved uh, what seven miles from the Canadian border. I like to tell people we live on the outskirts of Canada. Yeah. Uh, but um, grew you grew up in Texas. I grew up in Texas. There is this fierce, rampant. Yes, I'm American, but I'm Texan first. Uh, <laughs> and as we talk about allegiance, that's another line that's just really stuck out to me. Is this mm. the the final words? of St. Thomas More, who said, uh, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And I think yeah. that this is important for us as we look at this question of, of um, patriotism versus nationalism, is the question of who gets top billing in our life and in our, uh, in our uh, allegiance. Does our faith get top billing or does uh, our politics get top billing? And what that, that, takes place whether you are consider yourself on the right or the left the the question is do we see ourselves first as citizens of this world or first as citizens of the next and i think that's the question that i would love to ask you today and mm-hmm. sam you as well uh, how do we as on this day where we are celebrating and we are uh, enjoying the freedoms that have been given to us uh, it, it's wonderful to be able to go uh, to to mass and not worry if 
uh, the church is going to be burned down while we're inside. And that's not the case everywhere in the world. So we do get to enjoy these freedoms, but I think we also have to take the time to examine how much of our allegiance are we selling for the sake of that celebration? Yeah, I think this is, I think this is a fantastic thing to think about. Um, you know, there's, there's a narrative of, of freedom, which is appropriate because, you know, obviously July the 4th is, is in celebration of what's called Independence Day. Um, it's from 1776, which is the kind of the apotheosis of the American Revolution. Um, however, I do think that the question of the freedoms that, that gets kind of invoked is can be in some, time, in some cases a little bit misleading because the question there to me, like maybe just as a philosopher is like, well, what's the meaning of freedom? Like, what is the freedom? <laughs> and I think here there's something really important that um, the American idea of freedom um, from the revolution forward has always been fairly revolutionary in the sense of being negative. Freedom is the absence of restriction. Freedom is the absence of the crown. But there's another kind of freedom uh, and that kind of freedom is, in my view, uh, much more uh, in line with the church's understanding of freedom, which is not a simply a negative freedom, but a positive freedom. And it asks the question, what is freedom for? What's the telos of freedom? What's its end? What's its goal? What's its destination? Um, Christ comes to set us free, but he doesn't come to set us free just for the bloody fun of it. He comes to set us free so that we can grow in holiness and, 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 and unify our, ourselves to the Father. I mean, that's the, that's the meaning of freedom. And so the positive idea of freedom entails a kind of responsibility that freedom uh, is not simply an expression of license, but that freedom is an expression of, of an ordered end or an ordered goal. And I think that in the American uh, understanding of freedom, this has always been something that's been a bit deficient. And I think it's, it's um, every culture, I think, has its weaknesses. Um, obviously, for Catholics, the Protestantism of, Amer of, of the United States of America has always been um, a difficult thing for Catholics to navigate. I think, though, conceptually and philosophically, navigating the meaning of freedom uh, in America is equally difficult because our impulse as Americans is to say freedom is getting to like do whatever I want and no one can tell me I'm not going to go to church and worship and stuff. But no, that's not actually the meaning of freedom. In fact, whenever the martyrs had mass in secret out of fear of the, of the Roman empire, they were still free. Yeah. Their freedom was an internal and positive freedom. And in many ways, that freedom is what we all should long for. So it's entirely plausible that you can be negatively free and able to practice the external acts of worship, but be empty inside and have no understanding of the responsibility and proper destination of your freedom. And that is my big fear for an American independence is that we, in many cases, are willing to... Um, forfeit that deep internal uh, responsibility that freedom entails for the sake of license. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the great dangers uh, of, of, of the American idea of freedom. 
Pope John Paul II, uh, in the book Love and Responsibility, uh, yeah. he's talking about relationship at this point and, and, and within uh, human human relationship and, and romantic relationship. And he says this, love consists of a commitment which limits one's freedom. It's a giving of the, the, of the self. And to give oneself means just that, to limit one's freedom on behalf of another. And then he goes on to say, freedom exists for the sake of love. Absolutely. I think this truth is a truth that we can't um, undersell because what this truth entails, just like the example of the martyrs, is it means that even in the absence of negative freedom, whenever I am literally captive, whenever I am not free, whenever I am enslaved even, I have a capacity for true freedom that tears the veil of negative freedom. So whenever Martin Luther King in his letter from a Birmingham jail uh, or whenever the, the, the song or the poetry of, of, of formerly enslaved you know, black people in the United States rose up, they weren't asking to be freed in the negative sense, let us be free. They were in fact asserting from their inner spiritual freedom that we are free. We have always already been free. We are here to... To, to ask for our internal freedom to be able to be expressed externally. And this kind of inside out freedom to me is the enigma of the American experiment. It's my contention. And this might sound controversial, but that's kind of what I do. <laughs> what's, what's new. <laughs> yeah. It's my contention that the enslaved person who prays for freedom is far more free than their master or than the nation that holds them enslaved. Hmm. And by the way, I'm not necessarily just talking about the United States of America. I'd be talking about Egypt. I could be talking about Babylon. It's scriptural, right? Mm -hmm. But this, this is the tension of freedom. I really, I really think that, um, that the American cultural uh, apparatus has not really been willing to accept that you can actually not even be free and yet still from your soul have this internal capacity for freedom and to orient yourselves towards the good of love. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Sam Roca. Uh, Sam, when I, when you say that, one of the things that pops into my mind is this Catholic idea of the dignity of the human person. And yeah. we talk about that, that, that dignity is inviolable. right? The dignity of the human person is something that cannot be erased and it cannot be minimized. But that doesn't stop humanity from trying over and over and over again uh, to to demean and to, to degrade a person and to take a, try to you know mar their dignity, and yet they're doing so to that again to that negative dignity and not to the positive that that's that right. which is there regardless of what they may attempt to do and and that's the same thing that we see in the martyrs is saying um, this this temporal thing whether it be my um, my financial stability, whether it be my livelihood, whether it be my life, these things are not essentially what matters. And this comes down to this idea of to which nation do I ultimately belong? The one that's here or the one that is to come? And I think that the question of allegiance then becomes, um, you know, we think that the question of power is um, political. And of course it, it, it manifests itself that way. 
But the question of political authority, it can also be understood as a theological question. Uh, the power of God, the might of his arm, the authority of God. Um, these are, these are, 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 are scriptural questions. And I think that um, the, the answer we see in scripture, and especially in, the, in that beautiful song that Mary sings, the Magnificat, mm-hmm. is that the mighty will be cast down. So this idea of power in, 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 in political theological terms, the political theology of power we find in the Beatitudes and the Magnifica and the story of Exodus and in so many different things, the election of Samuel, the election of David, I mean, on and on and on and on and on, right? Is that we see that there's an, there's a, there's an enigma in, 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 in God's power where God doesn't express his power in what we consider to be the, the proper political expression of power, where power is to, to increase itself. It's, it's self-interested. No, God's power favors the widow, the alien, and the orphan. God's power lifts up the weak and pushes down the mighty. And so here we see this kind of narrative that in some cases called the option for the poor, but I think it goes much bigger than that, that our allegiance to the nation should never be an expression of power unless it is a theological expression of power where our power as a nation is manifest in its capacity to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to give, you know, uh, uh, to, to free the prisoner. And so, again, I think when we look at the American experiment, Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision was that the, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. I don't know if I agree with that, but I do believe that he had this very beautiful idea that the American experiment had a capacity to write its relation to power mm-hmm. over, um, over its life cycle. And, and so for him, the civil rights movement was, was that, that expression, which is an expression of what the abolitionist movement was and so on and so forth. You know, these to me are the questions of, of allegiance, which is basically like who's in charge here, but also what is the, What's the circuitry of this power? Who does it benefit? Who does it? Who does it aid? Uh, uh, who is the one who 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 is uh, who this power is for? And biblical teaching and the church's teaching uh, and the witness of the martyrs and the witness of Christ before Pilate uh, is that is that ultimately the powerful will be cast down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm going to just as we end our time here today, Sam, take this to the the level of one of the best ways we can mark the day and, and celebrate this day of the, the 4th of July and of the independence of the United States is to ask ourselves this question of freedom. How are we experiencing the freedom that has been bought for us uh, and, and paid for by patriots on back? And how can we live that out in a way that honors those who have gone before us and prepares for the freedom of those who will come after us. Uh, let us pursue justice and pursue a freedom that's a positive freedom, a freedom for the sake of love, celebrating where we came from, uh, striving to make America the absolute best expression of that freedom. Sam, thanks for being with us on the show today. No, thank you for having me again. I'm looking forward to talking to you more in the future. 
If you missed any part of that interview with Dr. Sam Roca, you can find it over at OutsideTheWalls.com where we have all of our archives. I also have an extra segment available with Sam uh, to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Up in the top right-hand corner, you'll see a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. There you can find all kinds of goodies. I encourage you to go take a look there. Uh, and while you're there, share this week's episode with your friends on social media. Let's continue to look at this idea of freedom and allegiance as we turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of my Verbum Library launching up, and you can get your Verbum Library by going to Verbum.com. There's a 30-day free trial. I encourage you to take a look at it. Um, but my library is open to the, the book of the prophet Hosea, and we read this. Thus says the Lord, they made kings in Israel, but not by my authority. They established princes, but without my approval. With their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves to their own destruction. Cast away your calf, O Samaria. My wrath is kindled against them. How long will they be unable to attain innocence in Israel? The work of an artisan, no God at all destined for the flames. Such is the calf of Samaria. When they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. The stalks of grain that forms no ear can yield no flower. Even if it could, strangers would swallow it. When Ephraim made many altars to expiate sin, his altars became an occasions of sin. Though I write for him many ordinances, they are considered as a stranger's. Though they offer sacrifice, immolate flesh, and eat it, the Lord is not pleased with them. He shall still remember their guilt and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. That reading comes from the prophet Hosea, and oh, that should make us nervous. <laughs> that should make us nervous, because here we have the people of God who were called by his name, who went ahead of God, right? I had a, a pastor back when I was a Protestant, and uh, he made a, a really strong impact on me. One of the things he said was, I never want to get ahead of God. He said, I, I don't want to, uh, to, to go ahead of the cloud or ahead of the, the, the pillar of fire. I want to always be following. Um, he said, I don't want to make plans for God because that's how we end up with, uh, with Ishmael, when we say, well, here's the promise of God, and I'm going to make it happen on my own. And here, in the book of Hosea, we see that um, we have the people of God deciding that they know how best to follow God, uh, and it's by taking control themselves. They made kings in Israel, but not by my authority. They established princes, but not, but without my approval. Uh, I I pray the liturgy of the hours, and one of these things that just kind of really resonates with me is it comes across very often is um, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put your hope in princes. And it's very easy for us to want to see the might, just like it was for the people of Israel, to want to see the might of a king and to feel safety and security in that might of the king and to uh, to give over 
our allegiance to that king that rightly belongs to God. Now, God is uh, as intangible as he is, is not quite as safety-inducing as, uh, as a king with, uh, with an army and chariots and horses and everything else that we see in front of us. But it's that faith and that trust that God will be with us in the midst of all of our situations of life that he's called us to. He's called us to put our trust in him. And so it says more than uh, the, the Psalms go on to say more than, uh, than watchmen wait for the dawn, so my soul waits for the Lord. Let watchmen wait for the dawn and Israel on the Lord. So there's this sense that um, we, we, we just hope and long and, and almost beg for the sun to rise as the watchman, just as we should be hoping and waiting and begging for the presence of Christ uh, to, who accompanies us to rise and illuminate our world with his light. So here, let us be really uh, mindful as we celebrate the 4th of July, that we in our celebration are not making kings without the authority of God, that we're not establishing princes without God's approval, that we're not making for ourselves an idol to keep us safe when it is God himself who longs for us to be his people and to follow after him and for him to keep his word and to be our refuge and our shelter and our security. Our reading today from church history comes from not too very long ago. Uh, it's from Spe Salve from Benedict the Sixteenth. Day by day, man experiences many greater or lesser hopes, different in kind according to the different periods of his life. Sometimes one of these hopes may appear to be totally satisfying without any need for other hopes. Young people can have the hope of a great and fully satisfying love the hope of a certain position and their profession, or of some success that will prove decisive for the rest of their lives. When these hopes are fulfilled, however, it becomes clear that they were not in reality the whole. It becomes evident that man has a need of a hope that goes further. It becomes clear that only something infinite will suffice for him, something that will always be more than he could ever attain. In this regard, our contemporary age has developed the hope of creating a perfect world that, thanks to scientific knowledge and to scientifically-based politics, seems to be achievable. Thus, biblical hope in the kingdom of God has been displaced by hope in the kingdom of man. The hope of a better world, which would be the real kingdom of God, this seemed at last to be the great and realistic hope that man needs. It was capable of galvanizing, for a time, all man's energies. The great objective seemed worthy of full commitment. In the course of time, however, it has become clear that this hope is constantly receding. Above all, it's become apparent that this may be a hope for a future generation, but not for me. And however much for all may be a part of the great hope— since I cannot be happy without others or in opposition to them, it remains true that a hope that does not concern me personally is not a real hope. It also has become clear that this hope is opposed to freedom, 
since human affairs depend in each generation on the free decisions of those concerned. If this freedom were to be taken away as a result of certain conditions or structures, then ultimately this world would not be good, since a world without freedom can by no means be a good world. Hence, while we must always be committed to the improvement of the world, tomorrow's better world cannot be the proper and sufficient content of our hope. And in this regard, the question always arises, when is the world better? What makes it good? By what standard are we to judge its goodness? What are the paths that lead to this goodness? Let us say once again, we need greater and lesser hopes that keep us going day by day, but these are not enough without the great hope, which must surpass everything else. This great hope can only be God, who encompasses the whole of reality, and who can bestow upon us what we by ourselves cannot attain. The fact that it comes to us as a gift is actually part of hope. God is the foundation of hope. Not any God, but the God who has a human face, and who has loved us to the end, each one of us and humanity in its entirety. His kingdom is not an imaginary hereafter situated in a future that will never arrive. His kingdom is present wherever he is loved and wherever his love reaches us. His love alone gives us the possibility of soberly persevering day by day without ceasing to be spurred on by hope in a world which by its very nature is imperfect. His love is at the same time our guarantee of the existence of what we only vaguely sense and which nevertheless in our deepest self we await, a life that is truly life. That reading comes from number 30 out of Space Salve by Benedict XVI. And here we see again this, this turning of our attention and of our hope to have first and foremost our allegiance and, and the founding of our hope and Jesus Christ himself. And then in that light, in its proper order, everything else makes sense. Our patriotism makes sense more fully when we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven. When we keep in mind the fact that we are wandering through this land and this time as strangers and sojourners, then we can more fully appreciate and more fully celebrate the freedoms that our nation affords us. But we do that as, as primary identity of being members of the kingdom of God and members of the family of God. We, when we are not beholden to the state, we can be more uh, grateful for the state of affairs as we see them. So, that's all the time we have for today, but I want to encourage you as you continue in your celebration on this, the 4th of July, do so fully in hope as a member of the kingdom of God, giving our allegiance to the king and celebrating the familial bonds we have with our country and our countrymen. That's all the time we have for this week. Today's show was brought to you by Ryan and Sarah Jepson and all those who support the show through Patreon. Ryan, I want you to know I'm going to miss our times uh, shooting off fireworks together, but I'm thinking of you on this day. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. 
On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.